The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right, I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, and open them to the Gospel of John, chapter 4. And this evening we open our Bibles to this very familiar chapter that I've used for the first couple of sermons on this subject of worship. And we're just going to use it tonight to catch a couple of important verses that were spoken by Jesus to the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. Now, you remember that they were involved in a conversation about worship. Who was right in their worship? Was it the uh, Samaritans and the way that they worshipped at Mount Gerizim? Or was it the Jews and their worship in Jerusalem and at the temple? And what we learned is that neither Jews nor Gentiles were right in their worship because they had done what natural men do, and that is they pervert true worship. The focus gets off of the right God and the right way, and so the people were no longer true worshipers. The Samaritans had turned to their strange idols and things that they did, and then the Jews in Jerusalem, they had turned to their rituals, and so neither one of those came out of a heart for God. And worship is, of course, all about your heart. So this is what Jesus said to the woman. He said, But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And that is our subject, worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And this kind of worship, worshiping God in the right way, may not look the way that you think, and it may not seem right to you, and often that's the problem. Worship focuses on God, and too often we want worship to focus on us or what we think. And it's very, very dangerous to make worship in our image. Now, I want to continue with our study tonight. Worship is essential We were made to worship God. That's what was sung in the song tonight. We are made to worship God. And all of you know our purpose statement here at Berean. Every organization needs a purpose statement. And the one for our church is the one should be for all churches. And that is our purpose is to glorify God. And the way that we worship or glorify God is through worship. That's what worship is. It's glorifying God. So right worship, true worship is why we worship God in spirit and in truth. Now, I hope that you remember in our last session that we were talking about the third part of our outline, and that is worship defined. And we have a very concise definition for it, which I want to give you again tonight, that worship is honor and adoration directed to God. Worship is honor and adoration directed to God. That's a very simple definition. But it does have a lot of people confused because you find many people that think that lighting a candle or ambiance, liturgy, or worship is peering at a cross through a stained glass window and the sunlight shining upon it. That's their idea of worship. Others think that worship is when we get up to sing and when many repetitious choruses are sung and people are worked into an emotional frenzy 
They think that is worship, but none of those things are actually worship. Now, there are things that we do that can aid in worship, but those are just the mechanics of it. They're not actually worship itself. Worship actually begins before you ever get into the building. And that's because worship is not a place, and it's not the mechanics of the things that you do in the place. Jesus said the hour would come when the true worshipers would not worship at Mount Gerizim or at Mount Zion or in Jerusalem because worship is not a place. Worship is an attitude of your heart, and your heart is something that you take with you everywhere. And so you can't expect to live on the outside of the church live your life in any way that you please, and then come into church and expect that you'll be able to worship God. You cannot do it. So how do we worship? Well, we looked at three forms of acceptable worship, and I'll just give you a very fast review of these from the last time. That first of all, acceptable worship is outward. Worship concerns the outworking of your Christian life. When you do good to others when you love your neighbor, when you help a church member that's in need, when you regard your weaker brother and the problems that he's going through, those things are worship. That's the outward part. Secondly is the inward part. Acceptable worship is inward. Right worship is dictated by right behavior. So it's what's in your heart. Is your heart clean? And that's a question that we, they always ask, or we always ask at the Lord's Supper, don't we? Communion is one of those times of sacred worship to the Lord. And we always tell you before we start, examine yourselves, examine your heart. Like the Apostle Paul said, is your heart right? Because you can't come to that worship without a right heart. And if you, how you answer the question of what your heart is like tells you whether you are actually able to worship God. And that's true whether you're a Sunday school teacher, whether you're a choir member, it's true of the person of the pew, and it's true of the pastor of the church that you cannot worship God without a clean heart. Thirdly, acceptable worship is upward. That is, God must be the focus. We are saved for Him, and we worship Him, and so we can't come in here and say, well, what did I get out of the service? That can't be the most important thing. What did I get out of the service? The thing that's important is God pleased with what we do. Did we tell the truth when we got in here? Did we preach God's word when we were here? Is God's word proclaimed? And if it was, then who are you to say that the worship of the church is not right? Just because you don't feel good about it doesn't mean that it's not acceptable worship. So who do we worship, self or God? And I'm sad to say that the answer to that question is usually all too apparent. So why do I mention these things again? Well, I went over them again because you need me to remind you and you need to remind yourself of these things before you come to every service. And then you'll recognize whether you worship God acceptably in spirit and in truth. Well, let's move on now to another part. I'm going to give you some more important information about worship. Fourthly, worship must be reverent. Worship must be reverent. Now, reverence is is when we recognize God's holiness. All of God's attributes can be rolled up and added together and expressed in one word, and that is holiness. Now, if you look up holiness in a Bible dictionary, be prepared for pages and pages of explanation without really getting to the the, the very simple definition of it. You know, I don't usually recommend that you would look up 
Bible words or, or theological words in a, in a regular dictionary. But if you want to do that, there is one dictionary that I can recommend to you, and, that, and that's, uh, it's very useful, and that is Webster's Dictionary of 1828. Now, back then, people knew something about theology, and even the dictionary reflected it. And this is what Webster said about holiness. He said, holiness denotes perfect purity or integrity of moral character. That is holiness as it applies to God. And so you know what that makes God? It makes God unlike any other being. Holiness makes God unlike any other being. Perfect purity is the definition of holiness, and that's what puts us out of reach of God. Perfect purity puts God into a light that cannot be approached. The Apostle Paul wrote about that. He wrote about the separation between God and man on the issue of holiness. And he says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, I give thee charge in the sight of God who quickeneth all things and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. Now, Isaiah stated this very well when he saw a vision of God's throne. He saw those magnificent creatures, the seraphim, crying before the throne, Holy, holy, holy. Isaiah 6, 3, And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. What a sight that was when Isaiah saw this, the seraphim crying out, perfect purity, perfect purity, perfect purity, holy, holy, holy. Not even the smallest speck of imperfection in him, not even something that could be measured with a mass spectrometer, if you know what that is. Nothing can approach God because he's holy. And the seraphim are there to keep anything away that would that would touch the perfect purity of God. Isaiah also saw, when he saw that vision in verse 5 of Isaiah 6, Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, folks, I'm setting you up for something, so I want you to pay close attention. Remember what I've just said in these scriptures. Isaiah, when he saw the holiness of God, was rattled to the bone. I mean, do you ever read about anyone in scripture that got near to God, that got near to the holiness of God, to a manifestation of God's glory that was not struck with fear and awe? It was perfect holiness that caused Uzzah to be struck dead when he touched the Ark of the Covenant. God's holiness cannot permit contact with sinful man. Now, when I think of Uzzah, I always remember that scene in Indiana Jones when there was a guy dressed up in the high priest's clothing and he looked into the Ark and all of a sudden heads exploded and faces started melting. I don't recommend you take your theology from Indiana Jones, but I'm I'm not quite so sure that that wasn't too far off about what would happen if that, if that took place. Manoah, Samson's father, told his wife, we're going to die because we have seen 
God. Jacob marveled when he wrestled with the Lord and he was allowed to live. God's holiness keeps us from him. God, Listen to me. God's holiness keeps us from him. God doesn't live by a standard of holiness. He is holiness. There's only one level of holiness with him. He's all that there is, and that makes him unique, one of a kind, the only true God. So here is your problem. Sin, which is a breach of God's holiness, keeps us away from God. And nobody is ever going to get close to God without perfect holiness. Now, if people would just realize that, uh, they, would, they would understand how utterly foolish it is to think that there is some good that we can do that would allow us to approach God. Every religion that puts its emphasis on man's work to redeem him, which all the religions of the world do except the one true religion of God, those people that, that believe those kinds of things are shooting so low that God will step on that kind of a bug that tries to step into his presence. God is in the light of holiness, and he's in that perfect light that no man can approach. Now, I tell you what I, I, I think is the most blasphemous, sickening, degrading, putrefying religion in all the world. I think it happens to be Roman Catholicism. Because there is no one who has built a more wretched affront to the holiness of God than them. Every rosary, every sacrament, every penance, every confession, every indulgent tramples on the blood of Jesus Christ, which is the only thing that allows us to approach the holiness of God. And you see, the problem here is that people just do not understand how wide the gap is between us and God. Now, back in our uh, sessions on Wednesday evening, the training videos, we went through that for a long time, and to me, it was kind of sadly amusing the way they treated the third commandment. And I, I don't necessarily think that this was by design, but do you remember what the third commandment is? What's the third commandment? Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, because God will not hold him guiltless who take his, takes his name in vain. Now, in my opinion, that is a, a commandment that was passed over too lightly. I mean, uh, have you ever taken the Lord's name in vain? That's what the interviewer asked. Have you ever taken the Lord's name in vain? They said, you know what that is? That's blasphemy. And then quickly they move on to the next thing. Now let's hold on just a minute and think about that. Can you just glide over the fact that you've taken the Lord's name in vain? Do you know what God's name is? God's name represents all that he is. And all that he is adds up to holiness. There is holiness in that name. God says, I am that I am. I am is my name. And his name makes him unique, one of a kind. His name is holiness. And that's reverence, a lack of reverence beyond anything that we could imagine to break that commandment that we would not hold God's name holy and reverent. Now, they quickly get people to adultery, which is the commandment number seven, and that... Uh, that, that just impugns God's name, as all the commandments do. But none of, them speak, none of them speak about going against the reverence of God's name like that third commandment. Jesus said, hallowed be thy name. Reverence, holiness, 
to your name. That is a very, very serious commandment. Now, that tells us something about how to worship God. First of all, it tells us that we must recognize who God is. You cannot worship God in spirit and truth if you don't know who he is. And I'm not speaking here about this God, our God, Jehovah God, as opposed to some other God. And I'm not speaking of him in the sense of salvation. Of course, you have to be able to identify the right God, and you must believe in the right God. But what I'm saying here, you must understand, recognize where you stack up to God. I mean, you look in the Bible, it's no wonder that people are always bowing and bending their knees to God. I heard something interesting the other day. I I was talking with Johnny Sloan. And he was telling me there was a teacher in his church that wanted to teach the children about getting down on their knees to pray. And he wasn't telling them this or teaching this uh, them in the sense of having a liturgy or some kind of a ritual to go through. It, It wasn't like an automated response like power kneelers that you have in a Catholic church. He was just he just wanted to teach kids reverence for God in prayer. And he said that there were people that were opposed to that. Can you imagine that anyone would be opposed to bowing the knee to Jesus Christ? I'm not so sure if we ought to, not ought to always say, we're going to pray, so what we need to do is we need to bow down, get on our knees, and recognize who God really is and what it means to be in God's presence. Well, I remember a few years ago, I was visiting a Catholic church in Bardstown, Kentucky, and I wasn't going to a service or didn't intend to, I'll tell you that. But this was a church that was open to the public because it had a lot of uh, very expensive, rare artworks in it. And so I went there to see that art. So I went on a, on a Saturday afternoon, but I arrived a little bit too early and they were having mass. And I didn't know that. And I slipped into the back door and just kind of out of curiosity, I watched what went on. So I was standing there in the back, and all of a sudden, somebody hit the power button, and with a loud thud that reverberated throughout that entire church, the power kneelers went down, and just like that, everybody went down to their knees, and one fluid wave of motion, everybody was down. And I was left standing in the back, sticking out like a sore thumb. Well, I watched what was going on. Now, I know this, that those people do not worship God in spirit and truth, but they did at least leave this impression that whatever it was that that priest was doing up there at the front, it was something that separated them from God. It was something that made them different from God, and it showed that God was greater than them. I don't advocate their method, and I think that the priest who sacrificed Christ in the Mass is going to stand before God and be held accountable for it. They were acting like they had holiness, but they didn't. But what you did get out of it was at least reverence. And I was thinking about that. And I was thinking about how much do we really respect the worship and the holiness of God? Our services begin at 10 o'clock and 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings and 6 o'clock on Sunday evenings. And yet there are people, sometimes even Sunday school teachers and leaders, that have no regard for the time. That people will come in late, disturbing the mood of worship because they simply cannot get to church on time. How much is our service and worship completely lackluster because we never give a thought to who God is? Can you imagine Isaiah being called into the throne room of God, but first he decided he was going to finish a conversation in the vestibule? Can you imagine Isaiah doing that? 
Can you imagine him coming in late to God's throne room? Now, I know we're all guilty of being late from time to time, but those that have a habit of this need to think much more clearly about what we're doing and who we worship. Brother John Harrison said something to me when I visited him in the hospital many, many weeks ago. Sometimes you might think that John's a little crotchety about some things, but you have to get into his mind just a little bit to see what he's thinking. And this is what he said to me as we were As he was laying in the bed there and I was talking with him, he said, you know something, Pastor? There's something I don't like. He said, I don't like all those conversations at the door about football and about sports and people do not have their minds on the Lord when they come into the church. And I'm standing there listening to John and I have a hard time defending us against that statement. Now, maybe there's room for some mitigation here or there, But I tried to step around his statement for a little while. There's just nowhere to go. That is completely accurate. And so his statement came to me as I was preparing this message. And I began to think about all of the visitors that come into our church. And there are people standing at the door watching them come in and will not interrupt their conversation about a football game in order to speak to a visitor that comes in the door. What do people expect to hear when they come into a church that says that the main thing that we do here is to glorify God? Wouldn't you think that they would expect that our conversations in this place where we glorify God would be about God? You're awful quiet in here tonight. Doesn't that make sense to you? It ought to make some sense to us. So what kind of conversations do they expect to hear? I think we have to be much, much more serious about what Jesus said, what Jesus told us to do. You know, we criticize Roman Catholics and Lutherans for high church and misunderstanding of worship, but I'll say this, at least they have got the attitude of reverence down. Now, the liturgy may not be our thing, and we don't have to leave the coat hanger in our suit to keep us straight when we come in here, but we sure do have a hard time recognizing who God is while we're here. We need to see the holiness of God again. I remember a few conversations that I had with Frank Tharp before he passed away. And uh, you've heard me mention Frank many times. I love to talk with Frank, but, but there were was, there was some things that he didn't like about this church. It wasn't the people, and it wasn't the preaching from the pulpit. The thing that he didn't like about this church was this room. He didn't like this room because what Frank liked was a traditional church with pews bolted down to the floor and a place that is a sanctuary, and it was unfathomable for him to think that we would have a gym, a sanctuary that doubles as a gym. And I don't know if Frank wasn't too far off. And this is why I hope that someday we have the money to remodel again and we get the basketball goals out of here and not make this a multi-purpose room for play and a sanctuary as well. I can promise you this, they didn't play kickball in the temple courtyard. Not in the tabernacle either. I don't know, that's just my thoughts. Maybe you don't agree with me on that, but um, when I come to church, I I want to... There's something to be said for ambiance at times, and I'm not, not real big into that, But there's something to be felt that we're in the presence of God, that we're in a place that we feel we can have respect for God. Now, you ought to have that anywhere you are. 
You ought to be able to worship God anywhere you are. But when you come in here, shouldn't our minds be focused on who God is? Singing the songs. You know, I see people that don't sing the songs when we praise God in song. People that don't sing. I don't know what's wrong with people that don't want to sing when they come to church. People that, while we're praying, that aren't paying attention. And as I mentioned this morning, people while I'm preaching on cell phones and doing all kinds of other things while the preaching is going on. I don't understand this. Isn't this the place where we came to worship God? Isn't that the focus of what we do here? We worship God. Why? Because he's holy. We have to understand what it means to come into the presence of God. We have simply forgot who God is. We need to recognize who God is. Secondly... We need to fear who God is. Now, fear is a huge part of that recognition, isn't it? We have forgotten to fear God. And folks, to me, that in itself is a scary thing. Because when you forget who God is, you will not fear who God is. Now, let me tell you how I think that fear fear of God has suffered a terrible letdown in the past few decades, in the past hundred years or so. And I think it goes back to the 19th century with the period of revivalism. And I know that's sacred ground for a lot of people, and maybe some of you don't like what I'm going to say. But revivalism had some good in it, and the intentions were good. It was, it was uh, good from the start because our country did need revival. But over the long haul, revivalism got off track, and the proponents of revivalism kind of got skewed with the means of revival, and they thought that the means of revival justified whether, whatever ends that they wanted to use. And we still see the remnants of that today. When you see churches that have gimmicks and all kinds of, of uh, games and things that go on and weird promotions that they use to try to get people into church, that's a leftover effect of the revivalism of the 19th century, the way that uh, revival should come, that went askew. Well, revivalism's worst effect was on the theology of salvation. That also became askew. Now, it's a good thing that fundamentalism grew out of it, and fundamentalism uh, was important because it defended biblical inerrancy in the late 19th and 20th 20th centuries against uh, higher Bible criticism. But fundamentalism concentrated a lot on the inerrancy of the whole Bible while forgetting some of the doctrines that are contained in the whole Bible. And so, knowledge of Scripture began to suffer. Now, I, I, I mean that knowing what the Bible actually has to say began to crumble at the hands of fundamentalism. Now, we still believe all the fundamentals of the faith, but do you know what fundamentalism is a code word for today in the religious world? Do you know what it's a code word for? It's a code word for ignorance. And, I, and I'm not... Yeah, hold on for just a minute. Just hear me out what I have to say. I'm not speaking about what the theological, uh, theologically liberal crowd has to say. And I'm not talking about what the reprobates say. I'm talking about those that are really interested to know what the Bible says and want to stand on truth. Fundamentalism often means blind ignorance of Scripture. People can listen to sermons like we preach around here and a sermon even like tonight that they may not even understand at all and they look like deer in the headlights when you talk about things like this. 
It's a dearth of expository preaching in fundamental churches today that's caused this because people are not getting down into the Word. And so fundamentalism becomes a code word for those in the know, a code word for ignorance. And so people become functionally ignorant of subjects like we're talking about tonight. Now, let me tell you about one of the things that revivalism did to worship. It took the fear of God out. And you say, how? Well, one of the ways was in the change of music. Now, music has a huge impact on people, and if you don't believe that, you just see how hard it is to get people to come and stick in the church when your main focus is not a band, a praise and worship band and drums and everything that goes on the stage and the entertainment and all the stuff that goes with music. Music is a powerful force, and many people are just glued to music. That's the thing that drives them. One of the things that that revivalism did. Now, it didn't actually give us the, the, the play acting on the stage type of stuff and all that kind of thing, but what it did was to uh, get the theology of salvation skewed, not, not of salvation itself, but, our, but of our um, knowledge of God out of the way, and, and it downgraded the music by taking the theological content out of the songs. And so instead of concentrating on the fear of God, the fear of God was placed with familiarity with God. Now, if you're taking notes tonight, take down this important statement that familiarity replaced fear. And what do I mean by that? Well, the subjects of the songs change from fear to feelings. And so you have fear and familiarity and feelings that are all out of whack. They're out of proportion. And so we started singing about reverence for God in a different way. And we started singing now about Jesus as our friend. That Jesus became our buddy. Jesus became the guy that, that will play games with you when you're lonely. And Jesus is the guy that you can go up and throw your arms around and say, I love you, man. And we lost the sense of standing in the presence of the holy God. Now, do you understand what I mean? What we did was bring God down to our level. We got too familiar with God and we lost the godly presence. So what we did was we watched Jesus get into our boat and we watched him calm the storm that's on the sea and we saw all that he did and we sat there and looked at that and we said, well, isn't that special? That's different, isn't it? And there's no fear in it. It wasn't a reaction like the disciples had when they saw Jesus still the storm. They were moved with fear. They were trembled at what they saw because they knew that they were in the presence of the holy God. It's like the woman who touched Jesus in the crowd and Jesus perceived that virtue had gone out of him. He knew that somebody had touched him in a special way that others had not touched him. This woman touched him in faith as he was walking through the crowd and being jostled around with all the people touching him. And when the woman perceived that she'd been found out that, that she had touched Jesus, Mark says that she was moved with fear and she came trembling and she fell down before Jesus. There was a fear of God. But what we do is we come up to Jesus and we slap him on the back like somebody's on the church softball team. Why do I say it? Because music has downgraded Jesus to simply as the theology of it, rather, has downgraded Jesus to someone who is just our friend with no sense that he's holy God. And so you get people today that tell stories about how Jesus appeared in their bedroom and Jesus showed up in the bathroom this morning. And you say, well, what did you do? 
Jesus showed up in your bathroom this morning. What did you do? Did you slit your throat out of fear? Oh, no. Me and Jesus, we just had a good conversation. What did you do? Did you fall on the floor in front of him, prostrate and say, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips? That's what Isaiah did when he came into the presence of God. No, I just kept on shaving. And we had a good conversation. Just two old friends swapping tails back and forth. Oh, Jesus appeared to me last night in my bedroom. He hovered over the bed. He just sort of hung out. What did you do? Oh, we, we just had a great talk. If Jesus appeared to you, you'd wet the bed in fear. You wouldn't be telling people what you saw. You remember Zacharias? He just saw an angel. And it was nine months before he was ever able to speak again. That's what coming into the presence of God is like. But you have these charismatics with their dreams and their visions, and it's just like watching Tuesday night television. Oh, I saw God again last night. No fear. And so we've suffered a downgrade of fear of the holiness of God. Now, I've come to the place that I'm tired of many of those songs that came out of the revival period. I know others get upset about that because they think those are the great old hymns of the faith. Those aren't the great old hymns of the faith. Take those and compare them to Martin Luther's A Mighty Fortress is Our God or compare it to Isaac Watts and what he wrote or John Newton and the theology of those songs. There is no comparison. They don't stand up because it's more about us feeling good than it is about worshiping God. And so the lyrics of our songs are a reflection of our theological understanding. And so when you dumb down the message, you get music that's dumbed down, and people sing and worship to God without ever knowing who God really is. I'd like you to turn to Hebrews chapter 12 for just a minute. This is the chapter that follows with the roll call of the faithful right after that. And you recognize this because it begins, Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, and maybe sometime we'll go over that common misinterpretation of that verse, but let's take a look at a few verses in Hebrews 12. If you look at verse number 14, Hebrews 12:14 says, Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Now, that's what we were talking about earlier. You can't see God without holiness, and you don't have any self-generated holiness that permits you to come into God's presence. Well, then the writer goes on to discuss Moses on Mount Sinai and how that there was great fear to approach the mountain because God was there. And the mountain quaked, and there was fire, and there was smoke that came from it, and that's because God's presence was there as he met with Moses. And then it goes on to say that the sight was so terrible that Moses, the great man of God, I'm talking about Moses now, this great man of God said, I exceedingly fear and quake. He was in the presence of God. Now look at verse 25. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall, we not, or shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. Now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. 
Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, listen, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Isn't that what we've just been saying? Reverence and fear of God. Now look at that again. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. And you know how that ends? Verse 29. For our God is a consuming fire. Now there you have the sum of Isaiah's fear when he came to the throne of God. Now here Hebrews references Moses on Mount Sinai. And God said, don't touch the mountain lest you die. Don't come up here in the fire and the smoke and the lightning and the thunder. And they didn't. They didn't because they feared God. Then it goes on to say, But you have not come to Mount Sinai. You've come to Mount Zion in the city of the living God. You've come to the new Jerusalem and the presence of mighty angels. In other words, God is telling us there, the writer of Hebrews is saying, Boy, get down on your knees. Because you are in the presence of God. Fear God. And that's why so much of our worship is messed up and it's not pleasing to God. Because we came in lazily and we came in late and we came without God on our minds and we just sauntered up and we touched his mountain. And you can't do it. You simply cannot do it. You must know who God is. And so you come in here without holiness, and you come without confession, and you come without contrition, and without consecration, and without concentration. If you don't walk humbly with your God, there will be no worship. Now, thank God that he doesn't do what he did in Old Testament times, because I think there will be a lot of churches, maybe even ours at times, where there would be dead bodies strewn throughout the room. Because we touch God's holy mountain without realizing who God is. Now, let me ask you something. Are you not intimidated by that? Are, are you not intimidated by what the Bible says about God? We need to be very careful about how familiar we are with God. Now, there is no doubt He loves you and He cares for you. He wants you to talk to Him. He wants you to call on Him for help. He's close to you. And the Bible does say He sticks closer than their brother. He is a friend. But He is not like you. He's not like you. So don't turn your fear into feelings of familiarity. Now, make no mistake about it, folks. You are not like God. He's unique, one of a kind. And as long as eternity lasts, even when we get to heaven in eternity, his throne is the one that we will always bow before. That's never going to change because why? We are created for the glory of God. That means he's bigger than us. We must know who God is. There has to be this godly reverence before the creator of heaven and earth. Now, I want you to think about these things. Think about them when you contemplate worship. What is your attitude about God? You need to get him right in your mind if you truly want to worship God in spirit and in truth. Make sure that you know who God is before you worship him. And that'll show up in the things that go around, go on in the church here, what our attitudes are like, how we come to this building, what our conversations are like. 
And I kind of suspect that people are going to try to change a few things, maybe. Talk in a different way, and everybody's going to be scared to mention a football game. So I don't know if the 49ers won or not. I surely don't know. So don't ask me, because I might put a curse on you tonight if you do that. <laughs> Remember who God is. Worship Him. You know, the bulletin article this morning, we, from Psalm chapter 29, Worship God in the fear of holiness. Re- remember that. Rem- remember who God is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. and We do stand in your presence in awe. And I know that we say that many times, and we even sing it many times. But I wonder if our hearts are really there in what we're singing. We really understand what we are singing, and to whom we are singing our songs to. Lord, help us to realize who you are. You are a friend, there's no doubt about it. But we can't become so familiar with you that we don't fear who you are. You are the living, holy God. And the only holiness that we have is what's been given to us. And that comes by Jesus Christ. So we are forever grateful because there is no other way that we could ever come into your presence. No way that we could even meet in this church and call on your name if it weren't for Jesus Christ. Thank you for him, and thank you that you are the righteous and holy God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275. Or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.